Good to see everyone. Glad to see that you braved the cold out there. My goodness, it got cold on us, didn't it? And I think I'm hearing most of the pages done. So let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer, and then we will jump right in. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for tonight, God. Thank you for this time that we can gather together, Father, and, and Lord, as a church to study your word together. Father, we pray that you would be with us as we see the truths here in First Peter. God, that we would, we would see how they apply to uh, not just the people that Peter was writing to, but to us as well. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that it guides us, it directs us. And Father, just pray that we would trust it. Lord, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we will be in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. So if you want to go ahead and find verse 11, but just to give us a little bit of a review of 1 Peter. We've been in 1 Peter probably about a year or so now. Uh, every time I've, I've had an opportunity to come in and share with you, we've been in 1 Peter quite a bit. and We've been going verse by verse. So we've gone through all of chapter 1, uh, about half of chapter 2 as of tonight, and we're just going to continue going that way. And what we see with 1 Peter is Peter writing to a group of people who are suffering. He's writing to a group of people who are being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. And what's interesting in chapter 1 that we see is that Peter is encouraging them and comforting them, but not in the way that we would expect. Not in the way that we would think of encouraging or comforting someone in that kind of a situation, or at least not, not the way I would think of it. Peter doesn't tell them, just hang in there. Peter doesn't say, hey, things are going to get better, which may not have been true. Peter tells them, remember your salvation. That's, that's their comfort. That's their encouragement in this terrible, persecuting kind of situation, is to remember the salvation that Jesus bought for them with His blood. That's what Peter tells them. That's what is their comfort in this time of struggle. And to remember, even though this life is, is fading away and this life is temporary, they have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. I love that scripture there in chapter 1. Just, just this, this three words that describe what our inheritance is, that nothing can take it away. And then he ends chapter 1 by talking about the blood of Christ, our salvation, how it was purchased. He says it wasn't purchased with material things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. He says our salvation wasn't bought with temporary material things. Think of the most valuable thing you can think of that's not what bought your salvation. It was the blood of Christ. I love the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, I think, uh, as far as Scripture that focuses on the sacrifice of Jesus. I don't, I don't know if there's more descriptive Scripture than what we find in Hebrews. But Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, talking about this sacrifice of Christ, uh, the author of Hebrews compares it to the Old Testament sacrifice. He says, we have this system of Old Testament sacrifice, but that sacrifice could never take away sins. He tells them the blood of bulls and goats, it can never truly take away sins because we're still sinful. Right? These things, they, they cleanse past sins, but the problem was that the people continued to sin. The system was broken because we were broken. Right? And he tells them in Hebrews chapter 10, these priests, they stand daily at their service, offering the same sacrifices that could never take away sin. But Jesus, having sacrificed Himself, has sat down at the right hand of God. I remember reading that scripture and really the first time that just kind of hit me and what the author of Hebrews was, Hebrews was doing. He was, he was comparing and contrasting. He says these priests in this old system, the work's always going on. 
The work's never done. There's always a need for more sacrifices, more sin to be cleansed. But Jesus and His sacrifice, He finished the job. Amen? He finished the work. And so these priests are continually standing, they're continually working. But Jesus, after He offered Himself as a sacrifice, He sat down. And Peter alludes to that and tells us that in chapter 1. Our salvation was bought with the precious blood of Jesus. And then we get into chapter 2 and he says, instead of living the way the world has, he says, put away these evil things in verse 1. He says, instead, crave the pure spiritual milk. So he says, set aside these sinful things and crave that which is best for you and grow up in your faith. He's, he's saying just like newborn infants, they crave what they need the most, this nutrition. He says as Christians, we should crave God's Word. We should desire and crave God's Word, and as Peter says, so we can grow up. Anyone ever had to tell you that? Hey, why don't you grow up? Anyone ever heard that? Sure, absolutely. Anyone ever deserve it? Absolutely. I did. Right? And, and the person is saying mature in this situation. Peter isn't saying it from a point of frustration. But he says if you want to grow up in your Christian faith, crave and consume the Word of God. And this is something for us to inspect in our own lives. Do we crave the Word of God? Do we desire it in our own lives? <clears throat> I've compared it with, with our students on, on Wednesday and Sunday, whenever I've used this quite a bit, I've compared it to if I would be in the middle of preaching. So let's say I'm in the middle of preaching here, and all of a sudden these Secret Service men come in here. And they come up to me and they say, Damon, we need you to stop what you're doing. The President of the United States has a message for you. It's crazy, right? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's Damon. He doesn't want to talk to Damon. <laughs> you're right. He doesn't. But most of us, whatever you feel about the man, it doesn't matter. The, the point is that most of us would probably drop what we're doing. It's like, good grief, it's the president, right? We need to stop and we need to see what he wants to tell me. Well, as we get and cut to God's word, it's not the president, it's not any kind of king or ambassador, it's the God of the universe, right? We should crave this, we should desire this, and when we come to, whether it be a Sunday or a Sunday night or a Wednesday or personal study time, we should come to that point of opening up God's Word and saying, okay, He has a message for me, right? And Peter says, crave this spiritual milk, crave the Word of God. And then he says, in craving the Word of God, we grow up, we understand that Jesus is our cornerstone, and the church is being built around Him. This cornerstone, as far as architecture, it's this idea of this stone that laid out the building, or in another sense, it's this stone that held everything together, and Jesus is our cornerstone. Remove Jesus from this structure of a church, everything falls apart, as it should. There should not be any kind of a church if there is no Jesus. That's what the author of Peter, or the author of 1 Peter is saying. That's what Peter is telling us. Jesus is the cornerstone, and being built around him is the church. Being built on him is the church. So what is this church? Is he talking about an actual physical building? Well, no. And, and hang with me because I want to, to kind of realign our thinking on some things here real, real quick. The church is not a building, right? The church is not a building. And this is what Peter is telling us. It's not a building that God 
has given us. We, we look at this church, and I think so often we say, well, we're going to church, or, or this is God's house. Really, that's not biblically right. I know that sounds crazy, but that's the truth. Now, do I think that we should just ignore these facilities and just cast them aside and say they're not important? Absolutely not. Because God has blessed us with these facilities, right? We are to be good stewards of what God has blessed us with, and He has blessed us tremendously. But understand what Peter is saying. He's saying it's not a building, it's not something physical, because no matter how good of something you build out of material things, eventually it's going to fall apart. He says Jesus is the cornerstone of a building, of a church, that's going to go for all of eternity. That building, the house of God, God actually is us. We are the church. And we see this, this truth in other places of Scripture. At 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he tells, Paul tells the church that he's writing to. He says, don't you know that you are the temple of God? That the Holy Spirit resides in you. That the church is not a building. The church is a people. The church is us. We are the church. And Jesus is our cornerstone. And then we go into what we went through last time, which was 1 Peter Chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. And we start to see that Peter is using Old Testament concepts of God's people and applying it to us as believers. He tells us that in Christ we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. And understanding that the purpose of God and now the people of God would always extend to the Gentile people. This is Peter. This is a Jewish man, a very devout Jewish man, who is writing this, who is saying this. And we see that Peter is the first one that God reveals this truth to in Acts chapter 10. He takes Peter and he says, I'm not just extending my salvation message to the Jews, for the Gentiles as well. And I'm very thankful for that, church, because I'm a Gentile. <laughs> I'm very thankful for that because without this, I would be cut off from the promises of God in the gospel. We are the people of God because of our Savior Jesus and what He has done for us. So tonight, we're going to progress a couple more verses through 1 Peter chapter 2. And I give us all that review to kind of bring us into the context of what's going on here in 1 Peter chapter 1 and, and 2. So Peter has been talking about the people of God. And so now he is continuing to talk about the people of God. And he tells us in verse 11, The people of God do not belong to this world. Look there. Verse 11 with me. Just the first part. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So let's look at some words here that are important. Let's look at some truths here. First off, he starts with beloved. This is a term of endearment. What Peter is fixing to command, what he is fixing to tell the church, and what he is fixing to tell us comes from a place of love and care for us. He says, Beloved, I urge you. This is the same word that we see in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, Paul says, I think maybe the King James says it, Therefore I beseech you, urge you, ask you. Okay, this, this brings the word picture of pulling someone aside to tell them something important. Have you ever had someone do that to you? Someone say, hey, I need to talk to you about something, and they pull you aside. Immediately, that was a bad snap, that's better. Immediately, you think, okay, this is going to be serious. This is a serious conversation. This is something important. This is what someone wants to talk to me about, and I need to 
listen. And this is the wording that Peter is using. He starts off with a term of endearment, and then he says, I urge you, pulling them aside and saying, I'm going to tell you something very important. And these next few verses that we see are very important. So anytime you see this word, urge, beseech, beg, We need to pay attention to these next scriptures because the apostles felt that the next few verses, the next few commands, were extremely important. He felt that they were very, very important for the people to understand this is to help you, this is to protect you. And this is the heart that Peter has for his people and the heart that we should see in scripture. He pulls them aside and says, I urge you, and then he tells them what they are as sojourners. Look at that word. And this carries the meaning of a stranger in a foreign land, otherwise known as a non-citizen to that land. We understand this illustration. They would have understood this illustration back in biblical times. We understand this illustration today. Of course, we know there's, there's all kinds of talk of citizens and non-citizens in our world today. And Peter says, you are a sojourner. You are a non-citizen of this world. The one who sojourns, the one who who goes through a a land without being a citizen to it, they don't lose the identity of their own culture, but remembers where their true citizenship really lies. I've had an opportunity in the past of being a part of of ministries that that tried to help and share the gospel with with different people from from different different lands who were brought here through, through normally really bad circumstances. They would be refugees and they would be brought to different areas like Nashville, Atlanta. Uh, These places have huge world populations in them. And and kind of like our video this morning that we've seen the Annie Armstrong offering, that yes, it it is difficult, but it's also an opportunity to share the gospel with these people. And, And one thing that they have to kind of do with these refugees is help them understand how to live culturally. Even things like, it's not okay to set fire in your apartment. That's... That's something that they had to do because as, as someone from a different country, whether, whether it would be Burma, whether it would be Iraq, wherever it might be, to them that's just normal. Culturally, they're still the same people. Culturally, they're still the citizen of whatever, wherever place they came from. They're just sojourning in our land for a time. I, I was around a few Iraqi gentlemen who were refugees. They, they were Kurdish people. They came from Iraq and they were refugees. They still had certain cultural markers. They spoke in Arabic. They served us really good tea. They were sojourning in our nation, right? They didn't lose who they were culturally, even though they were in our nation. And Peter says, in this world, you are a sojourner. But he, he uses another word to explain it a little bit clearer. He says, you are a sojourner and you are an exile. And this next description, it describes the foreigner a little bit more clearly. This is saying that we are non-citizens, saying that we are non-citizens, excuse me, saying that we are non-citizens does not mean that we are foreigners who desire citizenship or acceptance into the land where we reside. We know people come into our nation, they want citizenship, they're trying to get that. Peter says, you're not the kind of people who are in the world trying to find acceptance from the world. Do we understand that? And we're not in the world trying to look like the world and act like the world, looking for the world to accept us. Peter says, you are in exile. You don't belong here. You're not a citizen here. This word describes a person who settles in a town without making it their home. 
As I was thinking about this, I would think of someone who would be used to moving a lot. And maybe they're always moving, whether it be a job, whether it be a certain situation like that, and they never unpack their boxes. They just go in, they get what they need, and they always leave most of their stuff in the box. This is kind of the idea I think of with someone who is in exile. They may be living in a house, they may be living in a town, but they know we're not going to be here very long. They know this isn't our home. This isn't the place where we're going to be forever. And understand something, as a Christian, we are not looking to be accepted into this world as citizens. Instead, we are preparing for our homeland where our citizenship truly resides. That's heaven. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Paul, being a Roman citizen, being a Jew, he tells the Christians he is writing to in Philippians, our citizenship, where we truly belong, is not here, thank God, it's in heaven. It's not in this world that hates us. It's not in this world to try and be accepted by this world, but it's in the heaven that is waiting for us. And Peter, again, he's encouraging these believers and he's encouraging them, remember, this is not your home. You are sojourners. You are exiles. You are non-citizens. Your true citizenship lies in heaven. So he tells them, first of all, first off, the people of God do not belong to this world. And then secondly, he tells them, the people of God do not act like this world. Look at verse 11, second part there. So he tells them, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The second part here, Peter again, he alludes to this Old Testament truth that foreshadowed the situation that believers would be in. Israel, God's people, they were to be an example to the nations that were around them. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6. It says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Israel, spiritually, morally, ethically, the people of Israel were to be an example and not give in to surrounding nations. Although, we read Old Testament Scripture. We look at so many different situations. How often did Israel fail at that? How often did Israel, to look like the nations around them, accept sinful lifestyles and sinful things into their culture? Many, many times. They did not live up to that example that they were supposed to be. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, they failed to live like God calls them to live. And Peter is telling us, don't be like the Israelites. As this people of God, live like you should. Live holy. He tells us that in chapter 1. You shall be holy, for I am holy. He's quoting Deuteronomy. Peter here reminds us, as the new people of God, our enemy does not reside outside of our geographic location, but instead resides in the day-to-day life that we live. Look at that word, abstain. This word abstain, it means to keep away, have nothing to do with this thing, have nothing to do with what I'm about to tell you. Get away from it. Leave it alone. 
Don't just dabble in it. He says, get rid of it. Keep it away from your life. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Passion means eager desire or impulses. And these are from the flesh that we struggle with daily. Often we forget who our enemy is. We forget that daily as Christians we have a flesh that we are having to battle against. We need to fight against the flesh that we are still struggling with. It's very interesting in the book of James. James chapter 1, he talks about temptations. And when he, he puts blame on, on where temptations come from, oftentimes when we look at temptations in our lives, who do we blame? That wasn't rhetorical. Satan, thank you. That, Satan, right? Well, Satan's tempting me. He's, he's causing this to happen to me. But James says, each person is lured and enticed by their own desires. Now, we obviously see, looking at that scripture, we see that, yes, Satan, he does tempt us, but also understanding that we have our own fleshly desires that we have to battle against. We have a flesh that we have to fight, and Peter tells us, abstain from those passions of the flesh. Don't forget who your true enemy is. Peter tells, Peter tells us here that our enemy is the flesh, this old man that we are still dealing with. We have a new nature because of Jesus, but the flesh is still to be dealt with and fought against. This is a struggle, and we have to fight against this flesh, these sinful desires that are in our life. Why? Because he tells us it's fighting against you. Look at that scripture again, verse 11. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's some, that's some very intense language there. Peter says the flesh isn't just trying to distract you. The flesh isn't just trying to annoy you. He says your flesh is fighting a battle against you. It's looking to hurt you in a real way. Wage war means that it's making war. It's fighting. It means it's an active service. It's constantly looking to harm you, and you have to constantly fight against it. The fight for your eternity was won at Calvary, but we can never forget that we are in a constant battle with the flesh and we should deal with it harshly. How harshly? Well, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 tells us, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Scripture says as a Christian we are to crucify that old person, crucify the flesh, get rid of it. Scripture also tells us, Jesus, we must deny ourselves, carry our cross, and follow after Him. Fight against the flesh because it's fighting against you. He says, not only do we abstain from the passion of the flesh, but also, verse 12, he says, what we should be doing. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Look there in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Not only does Peter instruct us to abstain, but he also informs us of what we need to be doing. He says, keep your conduct. That means to hold your behavior to a certain standard. And he tells us what that standard is. He says the standard is to live in an honorable way in front of Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Those who are lost. Those who don't know Christ. He says, live in a way, keep your behavior honorable in front of those who don't know Christ. This word honorable, it means to have an outward sign of an inward good. This, this moves past this idea of, of hypocrisy and just trying to look good like the Pharisees. He's saying that we act good, we look good, 
because God calls us and convicts us to be good. He tells us that the people of God, we don't belong to this world. The people of God don't act like this world. And finally, he says there is a result of living like the people of God. Look there in verse 12 again. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I want to look at that phrase, so when they speak against you as evildoers. When they speak against you. This reminds us of an essential truth that we have moved away from in Christianity. And that is that following Jesus brings earthly suffering. It's going to. Following after Christ brings earthly suffering. Our faith produces a peculiar thing in this world that we live. It makes the world hate us because we simply love Jesus. And so often in our nation we don't see this very clearly. But it does happen. People do suffer for the name of Jesus in our nation, in our culture. We see this more clearly, of course, in places where it is illegal to be a Christian, but we see it in our world today. So let me ask you, how might we suffer in our nation today? Have you ever shared a biblical view about an issue like abortion? How about God's standards on marriage? How about just any sin in general? Does it produce a cheering section for you whenever you share that biblical view? No. No, it does not especially when you're sharing it with someone who is for sure lost. Students, adults who keep themselves pure for a godly marriage, will they not experience slander? Will they not experience people who are making fun of them, who are persecuting them? How about just simply sacrificing your wants and desires for what God is calling you to do? Does that not produce loss? Following after Christ will produce some sense of suffering and struggle. A true biblical Christian life produces loss and suffering. So the question is, why do we endure it? Why why do we endure this pain? Why do we endure this suffering, this hate that the world produces towards us? Because very simply, church, Jesus is worth it. He is absolutely worth it. His grace is sufficient and His love is immeasurable. And again, we understand, and Peter is just what he told us, we understand we don't belong here. We know this. we're limited here. This is a temporary home. This isn't even really our home. His grace is sufficient and His love is immeasurable. And then we see in the Scripture, He says, They will speak against you as evildoers. When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They may slander us, They may speak against us, may accuse us of doing evil, of doing wrong, but a consistent godly life in the end produces glory to God. Look at that phrase, on the day of visitation. This word visitation, this word speaks of God visiting and searching out the heart of someone. And I believe this is speaking of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I believe this is talking about God convicting someone of their own sin. And that's what conviction is, isn't it? God's searching us out and showing us our lost and dead state without Him. And see, this is what Peter is trying to do, trying to tie these scriptures together. He says, You may, in living for Jesus, abstaining from the passions of the flesh, keeping your conduct honorable, you may face slander, you may face suffering, 
But there may be an opportunity because of your suffering, some of those people who are slandering you come to know Jesus Christ. Your suffering is for the purpose of evangelism. Your suffering, people slandering you, is for the purpose of people seeing Christ in you. Don't we see this in Philippians chapter 1? What does Paul say? He says, everyone, everyone knows that I'm here for Jesus. Everyone knows that I'm in prison because of the cause of Christ. The entire imperial guard knows that I am here for Jesus. As you suffer and spread the gospel, we will see it spread to maybe even those who have slandered you. The Philippian jailer, Acts chapter 16, we talked about him briefly this morning, mentioned him. This is someone who is keeping Paul and Silas in prison, causing even some of their suffering. And we see him, because of the working of God and the conduct of Paul and Silas, we see him come to know Christ. And not just him, his entire family. His entire family comes to know who Jesus is because of Paul and Silas. As God comes to visit them and convicts their hearts for salvation, Peter says that they will remember your faith that stood the test of slander. And because of your faith in the past, they will glorify God in the future. And this is, I think, a harder concept for us to understand. But what I want us to grasp tonight is the fact that we suffer and we endure slander for the hope that those people who are hurting us come to know Jesus. We live a godly life and we're faithful to it in the hope that they will see that and glorify God because of the life that we are living. To wrap up here tonight, in the youth, we're doing more or less kind of like an Old Testament survey, trying to give the students a picture of what God has done throughout history and what He is, he is still doing today. And we just, we just study the life of Joseph in Genesis. And I know that Brother Jim is going through Genesis, and, and I don't think he's, he's there yet. But what we see in Joseph is we see a young man, 17 years old, who is, as far as we can tell, is someone who knows who God is, is always trying to do the right thing and is always faithful to do the godly thing. And at 17 years old, he is, he is put in slavery. He, he is accused wrongly. He is slandered. He is wrongfully put in jail. And by the time he is standing before Pharaoh, interpreting that dream, 13 years have passed. 13 years of suffering, slander, and wrongdoing. And I'm sure in all of those 13 years, it, it might have been easy to turn away from what God was calling him to. It might have been easy to live an unfaithful life. What we see is that Joseph continually was faithful to what God was calling him to do because Joseph knew that God was always going to be faithful in his own life. Joseph, at the end of his life, said, I know that God was doing something out of this. And our understanding tonight, as Peter encourages the believers that he is writing to, and as Peter is encouraging us tonight, is that your suffering is producing something. Your hurt, your pain, even those who are slandering you is an opportunity for the gospel to spread. So church, I want to encourage, encourage you with that, encourage you with that tonight as we think about that and as I pray for you. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for tonight, God. Thank you for everything that you've given to us, Father. Thank you for your word, your truth that we see in 1 Peter. And God, I pray that, that even if we do, and God's Scripture is very clear, we will suffer. God, even being slandered like we see tonight, God. No matter what 
we go through, Father, we just pray that we would be faithful to live for you. God, to abstain from the flesh, to, to keep our conduct honorable, to live for you, to be faithful to live for you. And God, the whole time sharing Jesus with those, even those who are hurting us. Father, I thank you for this church. I just pray that you would go with us as we finish our services out tonight and be with us this week. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You would stand with us.